Daniel chapter 9, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to be turning there. Uh, I want to return to this passage at the close of Daniel 9. Uh, it's a passage that's one of the most important prophecies in all of the Bible. Now, let me just kind of preface my message by saying this. I know that prophecy is one of those subjects that we're interested in, but we're somewhat nervous to approach. Uh, it's a mysterious uh, genre as far as Scripture is concerned. And some people avoid prophecy altogether out of an assumption that it somehow distracts us from the present. I think that sometimes if we're not careful, we can get caught up into thinking that Bible prophecy doesn't really have any relevance or practical import. And someone says, how's it going to really help me get down to the nitty-gritty as far as living my life come Monday morning? Well, let me tell you something. Uh, prophecy, when held with the right perspective, will bring you great confidence and assurance as you go about living your life as a believer. And you need to live with that kind of assurance, especially in these days. Because prophecy reminds us of this all-important truth that our God is completely in control of what's going on in the world around us. I remember reading where somewhere around 27% of, of the Bible was prophecy when it was originally given. You think about that, more than a quarter of this book is prophetic. And you've got some books of the Bible that are entirely prophetic, such as the book of Revelation. Uh, Daniel is one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. You know, together with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Daniel, those four books compose, compose the major prophets, all of which deal with prophecy that concerned the future. Uh, I remember reading this, over 330 prophecies uh, in Scripture concerning Christ, only 109 of those were fulfilled by his first coming, which leaves 224 yet to be fulfilled in his second coming. And so our God is still actively working behind the scenes and he's moving history to his intended conclusion. And he's bringing humanity to the feet of his son, Jesus. And so prophecy, to say that it's not important is to ignore just how much prophecy is given in the pages of the Bible. And we really see the importance of prophecy reflected in the lives of godly people uh, in the pages of scripture. And one of those is Daniel. Uh, when Daniel was in Babylon, he was studying Bible prophecy. He was studying the book of Jeremiah. And Daniel discerned that Israel's 70-year exile was nearing completion. And so his time in the Word uh, took him to his knees in prayer. And the answer that he's given to his prayer in chapter 9 that answer is one of the most important prophecies in the entire Bible. It's a prophecy known as the 70 weeks. Not weeks in the sense of days, but weeks in the sense of years, as those uh, who were, were Jewish would have understood. So if you've got your Bible there, uh, Daniel chapter 9, I want you to pick up with me once more at verse number 20. And uh, Daniel is told in this particular prophecy that there would be 77s or 70 future weeks, weeks of years, in which God was going to do something uh, as far as his redemptive plan was concerned. 
And a lot of it would center around the nation of Israel and how God had chosen Israel to be the instrument through which he's going to send the Messiah into the world. And we know that the Messiah is the Lord Jesus Christ and he is the hope of humanity. So Daniel chapter nine, verse 20, Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you were greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now these are some mysterious words to be sure, but these verses make up what's known as Daniel's 70 weeks. And I'm gonna speak once more from that subject. And so Daniel is told that God has a very specific plan in which the Messiah will come and deal decisively with sin even though it means that Messiah is to be cut off in the process. Intense times of trouble will proceed and follow his coming. The nation of Israel will be targeted and they will experience tribulation and trouble. And yet God has determined how and when all of that is going to come to pass. And so Daniel is shown that God is in control and no matter of what was going on or would happen in the world around him, God can always be trusted. And let me tell you, that's a big takeaway from these passages that we've been looking at in the book of Daniel. One of the key uh, themes that we keep coming back to in the book is the sovereignty of our God over the situations that stare us in the face every day. Situations involving government, uh, situations invol uh, involving uh, uh, humanity and the trajectory that humanity's headed, uh, decisions made by those in power that affect us way down the line. If we're not careful, we can sort of buy into this idea that the world is just spinning out of control into the abyss. And yet we know from Daniel that that's certainly not the case. History is God's story, and he's bringing history to his intended conclusion. 
And that's to bring humanity to the feet of God's own son. Now, there's several things as far as this prophecy is concerned that we've considered, uh, a couple of which we looked at last week, our last time together. Notice first the prayer that's involved. Uh, Again, this is seen in verses 20 through 23. Daniel is praying. What is it that he had been praying for in the chapter? He had been burdened over the sin of Judah. He realized that his people's sin led to their captivity in Babylon. Daniel had been reading in Jeremiah that that captivity would only last 70 years. And so 67 of those 70 years had already transpired. So Daniel realizes that God is about to honor his word. Uh, He told the prophet Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, he said that he would bring his people back into their homeland. And so Daniel knows that that's coming to pass. And so he's moved to pray. What he reads in the scriptures move him to pray and to confess his own sin and the sin of his people. And he realized that it was time for God to bring the Jews back into their inheritance. Well, as he's doing that, as he's praying, uh, we're told that he's interrupted by the angel Gabriel. And whenever Gabriel shows up in scripture, he's only mentioned four times or so, but it's always to announce news uh, that relates to God's redemptive plan. Uh, He shows up a couple of times here in the book of Daniel, shows up a couple of times in the gospel of Luke where he announces the news of of, uh, the birth of John the Baptist and the, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And so Gabriel has shown up in answer, in response to Daniel's prayer, and and he's come with some specific news uh, about the future that Daniel needed to know about. Uh, He's specifically sent with this mission to bring insight, verses 22 and 23. Daniel says that Gabriel made me understand. And he says, Daniel, I've come to give you insight and understanding. That word insight means to have comprehension, The word understanding refers to perception. So the idea is God has dispatched the angel Gabriel to Daniel with a very important message, a message in which he's going to provide some insight and understanding as far as the future is concerned. So then he says uh, down at the end of verse 23, consider the word and understand the vision. In other words, pay close, careful attention to what I'm about to tell you. And then beginning in verse 24 through the end of chapter 9, we have this prophecy known as the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Right, so that's the prayer that's involved. Notice secondly, the period of time that's involved. Gabriel begins by saying in verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. 70 weeks, not weeks in the sense of days, but weeks in the sense of years. And so you'll notice that Gabriel mentions a specific period of time that's marked out by God. That's one of the first things that you should notice there in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed. And that word decreed there comes from a word that means to be cut out or divided out. The idea is God is going to take a period of time in human history in which he's going to accomplish something. Uh, he's, going to, he's going to work his plan as it relates to redemption, to salvation, to the ushering in of the kingdom of his own son. By the way, doesn't it just encourage you to know that our God is a God who is not just distantly removed from our lives, 
You know, the universe is not like some clock that God has wound up and then he's just sort of taking a hands-off approach and letting it just wind up, uh, wind out and wind down. No, he is involved in history. Our God is sovereign over, he's, he's actively involved. He's a God who inhabits eternity, but he's a God who's working out the details of his plan in real time. And that's something that Daniel is being reminded of here. The idea is that this time period of 70 weeks or years, 77s, it's been divided out because God has said it would be this way. He's determined a block of time in which he's going to accomplish some things as his redemptive purpose is concerned. And then something else to consider, notice how the prophecies related to the Jews and to the city of Jerusalem. Seventy-sevens are decreed about your people, Daniel, uh, who were Daniel's people. Well, Daniel was Jewish, and so the Jews. Uh, Your holy city, Daniel, what was his holy city? Even though he was living in Babylon, he belonged to Jerusalem. Even though he was in Babylon, he was not of Babylon, which by the way, even though you and I as the disciples of Jesus and believers were in the world, we're not of the world, men and women. This world ultimately is not our home as it is now. And so if your heart is groaning for the return of the Lord Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom and perfect righteousness, then listen, you're going to find some real encouragement from these words that are given to Daniel. So it's almost as if God is saying to Daniel, I'm not finished with my people. I have a plan for my people, and I want to show you how it fits in with my plan for the whole world. And then this, this time period, the total scene that's, that's, that's been revealed, it's going to last 77, 70 weeks, 70 weeks of years. And then God has decreed um, that these weeks are divided up into three specific periods. Uh, The first seven sevens, followed up by 62 sevens, and then one final seven-year period. So in total, it's 490 prophetic years in the future at this point that Daniel is learning about. And and so that's a very significant number. You go back to chapter, um, verse two of chapter nine, Daniel had been reading and thinking about the 70 year captivity. Why had Israel been in captivity for 70 years? Why was it 70 years and not 50 years? Uh, Why was it 70 years and not 100 years for that matter? What's the big deal about 70 years of captivity? Well listen, it was because before that, Uh, Israel had neglected the Sabbath year, every seventh year. The law of Moses specified that Israel was, they were to not plow or plant their fields, but every seventh year they were to let the land lay fallow so that the land could receive its Sabbath rest. And so in God's economy for his people in the land, every seventh day was the Sabbath day, every seventh year was the Sabbath year. And yet there were 70 Sabbath years that went neglected. The people got greedy. They decided that their way was better than God's way. And so for 490 years, God had been patient with his people, but the time came when God said enough is enough. And so what does he do? He brings in Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They carry away the Jews into captivity in Babylon, and they're held in Babylon for 70 years, one year for every seventh year. Sabbath year that they neglected. So in his mind, Daniel's going back in Israel's past. 
realizes that they've been in captivity because of their disobedience. He's concerned about the previous 490 years of sin and disobedience that led up to the 70 years of captivity. That's what's heavy on Daniel's heart as he's praying. That's why he's confessing sin. That's why he's asking God to be merciful. And so what does God do? God gives Daniel some good news about the future. That's what God does. Daniel was caught up with 490 years in the past, but God says, Daniel, let me tell you what I'm going to do in the 490 years that are yet future. Now listen to me. You know what often happens in our lives as, as, as Christian men and women, as believers? If we're not careful, it's easy for us to want to live in the past and with past regret. You, you say, well, I've made some terrible failures in my past. And some of you aren't serving God because you can't get over some of the failure of the past. But let me tell you some good news. If you've confessed your sin and your failure to God in Jesus Christ, you stand forgiven. God's given you hope. God's given you a future. He's buried your sins in a sea of forgetfulness and he's put up a no fishing sign. The enemy likes to want to fish around for things in our past, but let me tell you, if it's under the blood, it's been dealt with. And something else I take away from this practically is I can't live my life in the past. You ever heard the expression, you know, there's no use crying over spilt milk? Can't do anything about it. You can't go back and change the past. But what do we have? Listen, we've got hope for the future. And that's what God is giving Daniel here in this prophecy of the 70 weeks. So the prayer that's involved, the time period that's involved, uh, notice third, the purpose that's involved. What is it that God's going to do ultimately once this 490 year period is over, once the 70 weeks have fully run their course and are over, what is it that God will have accomplished? Well, Daniel is told in verse 24 that it involves at least six objectives. What are those objectives? Well, God's cut out a period of time for Israel, for the city of Jerusalem, uh, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So the first three of these objectives are, are, are negative. Uh, the second three are positive. Negatively, God's got to deal with sin. In order for God to bring blessing to the world, in order for him to bring blessing to my life and your life, he's got to deal with sin. Do you know that? Uh, so he's got to deal with sin, but then positively, he's going to usher in permanent righteousness. So he's going to banish sin, and he's going to usher in righteousness. That's what God is going to achieve during this prophetic time that he's decreed. So objective number one, to finish the transgression. That word finish there is used in the sense of bringing something to an end. The idea is that sin will come under control and will no longer grow and flourish. Israel's time of apostasy and disobedience, God's gonna bring all that to an end. It led them into captivity. Uh, they, they experienced judgment as the result of it, but the time is going to come when their transgression is going to be finished. The second objective, to put an end to sin. The idea here is the power of sin is going to be broken. So sin is not just going to be restrained in principle, but 
The power of sin is going to be broken specifically and God's going to deal with the individual sins themselves. So it involves this idea of judging sin and bringing about forgiveness. And so ultimately it points to a time when sin is going to be eliminated in practice. The third objective is to atone for iniquity. That word atone there is a very important word in the Old Testament. Kafar is the Hebrew word. It's a word that was used um, to describe the pitch that was applied to Noah's ark. You remember when God uh, told Noah to build the ark? Uh, He had to apply pitch, which sort of served as a, a waterproof sealant that covered the ark. That word's used all throughout the Old Testament, translated as atonement. The idea is that in order for man to have fellowship with God, his sins have to be covered. His sins have to be atoned for. Uh, The idea of this substitutionary atonement goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. What is it that God did for Adam and Eve when they were expelled from the Garden of Eden? You remember what he did? He He had to cover them with skins. Those skins were taken from animals that had to die so that Adam and Eve could be covered. And so here you have this idea of substitutionary atonement uh, as early as Genesis chapter three. Folks, let me tell you something. You and I can't just waltz into the presence of God. Our sin has got to be atoned for. In order for me to have a relationship with God, my sin has to be covered. My sin has to be atoned for. And that's why Jesus Christ came. Atonement reconciliation between God and man. And so these first three objectives deal with sin and how God is going to eradicate it. Now notice the the second three objectives. Sin has got to be eliminated, but righteousness also has to be inaugurated. And so the next three objectives deal with the final realization, listen to this, the hopes and the dreams of humanity. What is it that we long for even now practically in our lives? Righteous government, justice, mercy. We want righteousness and justice to roll like a mighty river all over the earth, don't we? That's what we long for because we we see so much sin and brokenness and injustice and disobedience and perversion of God's truth. So positively, God is going to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's the fourth objective. It refers to the establishment of his kingdom rule. It's what Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So so everlasting righteousness, this is reference to the righteousness of heaven being found on earth as all the imperfect governments of man are swallowed up by the righteous government of God. We look around at the shape that things are in presently, and let me tell you, we find the imperfection of man everywhere, don't we? Everything that man touches, man corrupts. It's because of sin. So this is true socially, it's true economically, it's true politically. We long for a perfect form of government, but man at his very best is imperfect. But Daniel has said, look, at the time these 70 weeks come to a conclusion, God says, I'm going to usher in everlasting righteousness. The fifth objective is to seal both vision and profit. To seal means to bring something to an end. 
It refers to a time in the future when all prophecy will be fulfilled. And that simply means that during the 70 weeks, all prophetic revelation that is needed will have been given. God will seal it up. When Jesus establishes his kingdom, all prophecy concerning himself will have become absolute reality. So all of those promises that we read in, 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 in take Isaiah for example, Isaiah chapter 11, which I believe describes the millennial reign of Christ and what the circumstances will be like upon earth when Christ is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 11 says that the wolf and the lamb will lie down with one another, side by side. A child can play over the hole of a cobra and there's no, no threat of danger. Why? Because listen, even the creation itself, there's going to be a return to Eden. And someone says, well, you know, this is where some of our amillennial brothers and sisters would say, well, all of that's figurative of the church, isn't it? All those specific prophecies, you know, in Isaiah chapter 11 and others that you say deal with a particular kingdom, a literal kingdom on earth, ultimately that just points to the church and it's all just symbolic figurative language. Let me tell you something. In the church, we can't even get the Calvinists and the Arminians to agree. We can't even get the contemporary worship folks to hang out with the traditional hymn singing worship folks. No, that doesn't refer to the church. The kingdom is not the church. The church is not the kingdom. The church is merely a vehicle for the kingdom, but the kingdom is coming, and the king himself is going to return and establish his kingdom upon the earth. And that's what God is telling Daniel here. So the sixth objective is, is this one, to anoint a most holy place. Literally means that God will anoint a new holy of holies where his presence will reside. And formerly that had been in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then Solomon's temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And yet in the future, Daniel learns that God is going to do something altogether new. So, so here in verse 24, Daniel is told that God has determined a time in which sin is going to be dealt with and righteousness is going to be ushered in. And the perfect fulfillment of this, uh, this, this refers to the millennial reign of Christ, which is still yet future. And yet there still is a sense in which all of these realities are true spiritually because of what Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection. Where's the holy of holies? Listen, you're the holy of holies right now, where God has made his spirit to dwell. I don't come to church in this building because this room represents the holy of holies where God resides. No, this is just simply the meeting house of the church, but the church is the body of Christ, and the spirit of God now resides within the hearts of his people. And the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has made that a spiritual reality. And yet the time, folks, still is coming where God's going to tabernacle with man when Christ himself comes to establish his rule and reign and reign from a millennial temple upon the earth itself. Now let me show you a fourth thing here, and, and I've got to hurry, the particulars of the prophecy. The prayer that's involved We've already seen that, the time period, and then the purpose that's stated in verse 24. But the particulars of the prophecy, in other words, how it's all going to come about, uh, Gabriel begins to explain that in verse number 25. 
He says, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. In the original text, it reads this way, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So again, Daniel is told when all of this will begin. When God's going to break into history, when, he, when, the, when the time clock is going to begin to tick, when the prophetic clock begins to tick once more, he's told when it will begin. It's when the word goes out to restore and build the city of Jerusalem. The idea is there will be a legal decree that allowed for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Now historically we know that it was Cyrus the Great who allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. He allowed them to uh, begin rebuilding the temple. But that wasn't an official decree to rebuild the city. But it was several, several years later there was another Persian king who made it known far and wide that the Jews were indeed to rebuild their city. And we read about this in the book of Nehemiah. And so Bible scholars agree that this decree that goes out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it refers to the decree of King Artaxerxes of Persia in 445 BC, some 90 years after Daniel receives this prophetic word in Daniel chapter nine. In fact, we're told in Nehemiah chapter two, verse one, that it was in the month Nisan on the Hebrew calendar in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Y'all remember Nehemiah? Nehemiah goes to the king because Nehemiah had received word that, listen, the Jews had started going home, but the city of Jerusalem still had not been rebuilt. The gates had not been restored. The walls had been burnt down with fire from all of those years prior uh, before the captivity. So Nehemiah has a burdened heart. He wants God to do something. So he asks God to give him an opportunity to make his case known to King Artaxerxes. And that's exactly what happens. And in chapter two of the book of Nehemiah, it's the Persian king Artaxerxes who gives the official word for Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, and that's exactly what he does. And it's interesting, in that chapter, Nehemiah sees it as the sovereignty of God that's orchestrating the events. He attributes it all to the good hand of God that was upon, in other words, it was God who was in control of the king. It was God who was accomplishing his purposes. And so the 77s will begin with this official decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And then Daniel is told in verse 25 that it will be rebuilt from the inside to the outside, but during a troubled time. Y'all remember all the opposition that Nehemiah was up against when he actually got there? He came to rebuild the walls, but it, you know the walls were rebuilt in 52 days miraculously, but there were these two guys always just seemed to be two guys. These two guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, man, they just stirred up a stink. So much so that in order to mobilize the workers for the project, the workers had to work with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. They laid bricks with one hand and they were prepared to fight with the other. And yet in 52 days, the walls were rebuilt around the city. The work got done because God had determined it would be done that way. And so the prophetic clock then began to tick, 445 BC. But how's it going to continue? Where's this all going to lead? Well, there's going to be an additional 62 weeks 
All that happens in the first seven sevens, 49 years. But what about the additional 62 sevens? 434 more years. So you've got these two periods. You've got the first uh, seven sevens, 49 years, followed by 62 sevens. That brings you to a total of 483 years. So from the time that the word goes out from Artaxerxes in 445 BC to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah, there will be 483 years. Now here's the thing, you reckon this on the Jewish calendar, the Jews reckon time a little bit differently than we do. The Jewish calendar was a 360 day calendar as opposed to 365. But let me show you something. Where's this all going to end up? Because remember, Gabriel says the anointed one is going to appear. Messiah, the prince, the rightful king of the Jews. Hold your finger here and go to Luke chapter 19 with me for just a second. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 29. Luke tells us that when Jesus drew near to Bethany, to the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And here's what he said, verse 30. Go into the village in front of you, where upon entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, but untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went away. They found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner said, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, now listen to this, he's approaching the city of Jerusalem at this point. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This was fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, would you be surprised to learn that according to the Jewish reckoning of time, In the month Nisan, the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, which was 445 B.C. You fast forward those 483 years, as the Jews reckon time, it brings you to roughly the month of April, 32, 33 A.D., Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday as Jesus Christ makes his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Y'all, this is some kind of book right here. Daniel had been in circulation by that point for five centuries. Five centuries in advance, God had prophetically told his people what to look for. And even before that, 
Isaiah said that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. Isaiah chapter nine, unto us a, a child is born, a son is given. Micah 5, 2, we're told that he's going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. 33 AD to the day, prophecy determined that this king would make his entry into the city of Jerusalem. Now I want to show you something. As the crowds were shouting and rejoicing, verse 41 says that when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept. Does that seem strange to you? That as the people are rejoicing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's the king. Jesus weeps. Before that, the Pharisees had tried to get the crowd to calm down and said, Jesus, do something about your disciples. And Jesus said, let me tell you something. If they don't shout it, the rocks and the mountains will. Every other occasion up until this point, Jesus had told people to be silent when it came to them wanting to tell everybody that he was the Messiah. But not on this day. Why? Because this day is the day that the 70 weeks foretold. That at the 69th week, this anointed one would be presented, the Messiah. And yet it goes on to say, Daniel's prophecy goes on to say that he would be cut off. Literally, the Hebrew word means executed. So Jesus weeps as he draws near the city. And listen to what he says, verse 42 of Luke 19, to, the, to Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. By the way, that's man's problem. We don't know what truly makes for peace. We think, well, just compromise your conviction. Just agree that everyone's opinion as to what is true is legitimate. Buy in to moral relativism, and that will lead to peace in our day. No, it will not, because you can't have peace without truth. That's a word that our generation needs to hear. You cannot have peace without truth. Jesus says, would that you have known the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, God had broke into your world in real time, in real history, and you missed it. You missed it. Four days later, after this event, some of the very same crowd that were singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are also saying this, crucify him. And when Pilate asks the crowd, shall I crucify your king? The response, we have no king but Caesar. And it all just illustrated what the Apostle John writes about in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. He was rejected. Isaiah said it would be this way in Isaiah 53, that the Messiah would be the suffering servant, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, rejected by the very ones he came to save. But folks, what I want you to see is that this didn't take God by surprise. The cross was not an accident, but it was the plan of God from eternity past. It had to be this way. 
Israel rejects her king. But it had to be this way. Because let me tell you what God is doing now. Because the anointed one was cut off, but not for himself. He was cut off, seemingly having nothing. What that does is it opens up a fountain for salvation to the Gentiles, us who can be grafted into the family of God through faith in this Messiah. So Israel rejected her king, her Messiah, but it didn't mean that God's redemptive plan would fail. And it had to be this way in order for Christ to achieve the salvation of his bride, the church, which overwhelmingly is made up of Gentiles. And so that's the end of the 69th week. And you're thinking, well, how could Israel have been so blind? If you could almost pinpoint down to the very day when Messiah would make his entry into Jerusalem as their king, how could they be so blind? It's an honest question, but it's a question that reveals just how little we understand of the depravity of the human heart. Because folks, there are none so blind as those who will not see. Lack of belief is never a matter of lack of evidence. If you're not a believer this morning, it's not because there's the lack of evidence. It's because you've come into this world with a default position of unbelief. And that unbelief has to be overwhelmed by the spirit of the living God who has to open your eyes and you must be born again in order for you to enter into the kingdom of God. The explanation for the world and how we all got here and humanity and the fact that we can see with these two little things in our skulls, how it's all wired to my brain and my brain fires all these messages to all the other members of my body. The world and its wisdom says, well, that just happened by chance. There is no one so blind as he who will not see. So don't pick on Israel for rejecting her Messiah because were it not for the grace of God, we'd done the same thing. So where's it all going to end? What about that final week, the 70th week? I'll deal with that next week. (laughs) Stand with me as we pray this morning. Before I pray, why is all this important? Listen to me, I'll tell you why. First, there's a special blessing that's promised to the one who pays careful attention to the words of prophecy. Did you know that? Revelation 1.3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who hears and keeps what is written for the time is near. Another reason why this is so important, folks, is because Jesus Christ is the subject of prophecy. It all finds its fulfillment in him. And if you love him, you're going to love that which points to him. And prophecy points to him. And yet another reason why this is so important. Listen, God intends for prophecy to give us a proper perspective on life. What's the grid through which you're looking at your world today? Is it the opinion of the culture? Is it your own attitudes and opinion or is it the prophetic word of God because when you begin to look at the word the world through the lens of the prophetic word of God it will give you a perspective that will bring confidence and calmness to your life as a believer now folks if you don't know Jesus as your savior today 
I don't know what more I can say to urge you to repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in him. For you to have a relationship with God, your sin has to be dealt with. And the beauty of it is, that's what the cross was all about. Would you come to Jesus today? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Those who are watching online, my invitation is simple. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I urge you to come. I urge you to repent. I urge you to believe the gospel. That Christ died for your sins and that he rose again and that he's coming again. Parker's going to lead us in a song. If you need to respond, you'd like to pray with one of us pastors, we're here at the front. We'll be here even after the service is over. If you're online, you want to reach out to us via email, you can do that. Send us an email at connect at greenstreet.org if you'd like more information about what it means to be a Christian or a member of this church family. Lord, thank you for your word, how it brings confidence and courage to our hearts and lives in these chaotic days. It all points us to Jesus. And Lord, it's the prayer of our heart. We want to love you more. Lord, when I read this, I'm reminded of the urgency of the hour. Now is the time to make disciples. Now is the time to lead our children to faith in Jesus. Now is the time to sacrificially minister to the lost, to the poor, to the downtrodden in the name of Jesus. Because people need hope. And Jesus is that hope. Lord, have your will in our hearts and lives. For Christ's sake, amen.